Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Treknababble. Uh, this is Kevin. This is Matthew. And today we are reviewing this week's Discovery episode, Civis uh, Pachem Parabellum. I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that correctly, and honestly, don't correct me if I'm wrong. It's a dead language, and I can say what I want. Uh, but it means, if you want peace, prepare for war. Um, yeah. Uh. Okay. Kind of an odd title, actually. Given the actual substance of the episode, yeah. Um, Also, kind of, it's just an odd. I mean, it's not that characters in Star Trek have not expressed this view. They're like usually it's the interloping Starfleet admiral that has a you know less uh, cheery view of the universe. But it's almost like a perfect encapsulation (laughs) of of the kind of tonal dissonance that um, I think Discovery has. Not as bad as you know. The, the Abrams movies, which had no tone, and uh, Enterprise, which I think could be bland in places, but it's kind of like, if you want peace, prepare for war, is, is not a, it's, it's not something Gene Roddenberry would have said. And I'm not saying that that should be the only guiding force in um, Star Trek creation, certainly not. I've certainly said many times that, when I, that there are several points in which the writers broke with Roddenberry to the show's benefit, but it is kind of like a, as a Trekkie, that sentence catches my ear wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if Tiny we were trying to complain, yeah. If we were going to try to cast ourselves uh, into the mind of a Roddenberry, I think he might say, "If you desire peace, <laughs> prepare for peace." Uh, you know, like actually go do it, right? To be fair to this series uh the original series definitely had the cold war vibe yeah yeah and you know so frequently the the conflict or the tension in the episode was is this going to lead to war that was generally the stance because of course in the 1960s uh that's what everybody wanted to know is this going to lead to war um and you know kirk would tend to be kind of a middle ground character, neither wholly pacifist nor wholly uh, hawk hawkish, um, and he would try to uh, you know tread that middle ground. Spock would often be the pacifistic character, and like you said, you know various uh, you know other entities, whether it was the Klingons or other Federation members, might be advocating for more aggressive uh, behavior. And as you mentioned, and we'll probably talk about with this episode, there's also the participation of other species in the uh, TOS universe. Um, and almost to, to a species, they are completely pacifistic and want the humans and the Klingons to stop their stupid idiocy, ASAP. Uh, so, you know, like that's some backdrop for people who are watching this show and are also going the extra mile of listening to podcasts about it and, uh, you know, don't really have the, the background, you know, uh, to, to sort of situate this in its place. I've read reviews that say Star Trek discovery is the best thing that's ever happened to Star Trek, you know? And I get the feeling that, it's written by people who didn't really like Star Trek in the first place and just sort of, you know, grit their teeth through it or something. 
because th- the general thesis is that, you know, this show is darker and more realistic and gets into the human conflict that something like DS9 kind of did a little bit, but, you know, it, it's so much better than the sort of uh, dewy-eyed optimism of the other series. And, you know, that when I read something like that, I just think to myself, you you totally missed the point, didn't you? It's, it's like if you wanted to watch Battlestar, just go watch fucking Battlestar, you know? And we like, loved Battlestar. The first yeah. two and a half seasons of Battlestar are easily among the best television I've ever watched. Yeah. Um, they should have just ended the series on a cliffhanger <laughs> with the Cylons taking over New Caprica at the end. The, yeah. The whole well, end. <laughs> yeah. It um, might have been better. But, you know, um, it's... Yeah. So... Where I'm going with this is is not that I dislike this show. It's just that I, I'm kind of amazed by people who say this is what Star Trek should have been, as if somehow the prior 50 years of the franchise was just sort of a rough draft until they got to this version, which is better. That's that's just patently ridiculous. You know, that the 50 years of franchise was what got so many millions of people. Uh, into it. I do also wonder if the like acting requirements have just changed as have production requirements. I think there's something to people who watch Star Trek, especially the original series as kids, that a certain level of ham-fistedness and that the a- acting could veer into or cheesiness and low production values. It's it's like watching Shakespeare. Y- you understand as a human being no actual person talks this way, but when you're watching Shakespeare, your brain goes along with the conceit of the poetry and you have a good time. And I wonder if the, like the golden age of television has also created this sense that TV must be, must have like perfect verisimilitude. Like it must. Yeah. Everything has to be cinema verite, you know, uh, slice of life, you know, tense, talked, gripping, serialized, which I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, you know, like every single thing now is in the mold of, I mean, what are some of the, the, well, but between Mad Men and Lost or Walking Dead, like any of the, yeah. And don't get me wrong, all of those are excellent shows. Walking Dead, a little more, I'm just pulling names at random here, but it's like, I appreciate and watch a great deal of that kind of television, and it's all very good and very entertaining. Well, or Game of Thrones, yeah. or Westworld, or... Well, it's like, okay, so my general thought watching the setup, and we can just kind of dig into the writing here, um, the setup of the three characters on a planet they assume to be uninhabited, but is actually inhabited by a non-corporeal being, and said non-corporeal being has a deceptively perfect society and is interested in humans not fighting each other. Like, that's like four or five bumpers in the TOS storybook right there, like, if you if you excise the Klingon bits of the story, what you have is a straight up TOS episode. Um, yeah, and my yeah. my sense of this episode was you're giving me actually a fairly decent riff on the TOS episode. You know, the society wasn't secretly stagnating; it wasn't secretly run by a robot or Clint Howard's brother, or you know, Ron Howard's brother. Um, it was a fun twist on that set of stories of TOS. And I kind of wish, like, my biggest complaint about this episode was the Klingon stuff just took time away from what could have been tweaking this episode to make it fantastic. Yeah, so uh, it's written by Kristen Beyer. Who who I like. I've read several. I haven't. I'm not caught up on the Voyager books uh, just because after... 
after the Borg Cube ate Pluto, I kind of checked out of that arc, and I checked back in later when Janeway is back, and it's, there are good books. She's an excellent, she's a good writer, and I fully believe she gets, understands, and likes Star Trek. Yeah, so the, the things you mention about this episode are indicators that there is someone at the helm who has at least watched Star Trek and understands, you know, various aspects of it, uh, you know, like kind of gets the universe. I I will say that even if they had excised the Klingon stuff as much as they could and spent that extra 10 minutes, you know, developing various aspects of the planet side story, um, there still is kind of a case of the dum-dums about it. You know, it, it's like, for one thing, a lot of the things they were doing were sort of like spoken as important on screen, but didn't really feel organic or important. And I was just like, okay, we got to put the thing in the thing. Yeah, it was, it was a straightforward MacGuffin. But I, I think what like the act like Doug Jones did a good enough job that it made me think that if they had done like just a few more minutes fleshing out like like um. I liked how in uh, uh, Choose Your Pain, his, like, upbringing as a predated species played to the, like, he learned how to use that to his advantage. He understood, he he correctly and quickly diagnosed the situation because of his unique experience. That's great. Um, Let me just say, I feel like they need to, they haven't done a single character spotlight episode yet on anybody but burnham at this and point they really need to yeah we, yeah they like, really I, really need to i thought that, I mean, that's what this just was on be. saru yeah well because what i was saying like i like the idea that there's a quality that from which a person can derive both tactical and professional benefit but also feel personal angst about that's that's dramatic that's interesting people do I just that. feel i feel like it needs to be explained well yeah I, I, like and I think how they, how a predated species became the sentient you know species on on a given planet it it just you know there are so many science and science fiction questions that i I would i would love to see explored yeah i think they imply they were um created for that purpose like the like that was at the tosk or from ds9 or something like that and again fascinating question so my my idea like i wish they had shown like so saru says he feels a sort of background level anxiety fear all the time and the appeal of this event was that he no longer felt that that's great uh there are there are i could we could spend the rest of the evening listing the star trek episodes in which someone's pain or anxiety or grief is magically removed by a semi-omnipotent being and you have to circle back around to that's an important part of your personality you can't just say blah 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 yeah they don't show it like i yeah saru had to tell me he feels this way and that's why he did these things when like um the line when he says you won't take this from me too was a, a exquisitely delivered line and it reminded me of the uh telescope scene um a few episodes back where it's like in a vacuum your actors are good enough the words that are coming out of their mouth technically achieve the thing you wanted to but because you've compressed your story with all this klingon crap i'm gonna start spelling crap with a k um 
K apostrophe. K apostrophe. Yeah. Um, you just, you skipped over, like, even, even giving the, the Pavan some, like, real sense that they, like, okay, so, again, Star Trek and science fiction generally has a long list of stories of, like, a Gaia theory of a planet, an entire ecosystem that has some emergent, sentient quality that all of these subparts contribute to, but are not, indiv- like, all, great science fiction idea. And we got almost nothing. And got nothing. Yeah, just all of the all of the beats were. It, it's like they took a TOS script where Kirk finds you know the happiest people in the world and it fi- and figures out what's really wrong with them and then just slash like a third of the dialogue to make room for a B plot and the end result is it's well, not- but Ke- I, you know what, Kevin? Yeah, I, I'm with you. It, but it's like they took three TOS scripts <laughs> and sort of smashed them together. And developed none of them because they had to do twenty minutes of Klingon. Crap. Right, even if, even if they had to keep the Klingon stuff. Like I'll, I'll say, part of what we loved about um, Magic to make I we need to start coming up with shorthand titles. Like it's one thing when I have to occasionally say "looking for Parmok in all the wrong places," but most of them have single or two word titles. Just saying. So for uh, Magic last week, the reason that episode worked is because the narrative thrust of the episode was actually about developing Burnham from a point A to a point B in her emotional arc. And even it wasn't achieved perfectly, but it was there. And on the way, we learned something about Stamets, we learned something about Tyler, like the characters and their interactions, much like in its sort of grandfather cause and effect, were what propelled the episode. Mud- well, but also what worked about it was that it was self-contained plot-wise. It... it- like, yes, Mud was in prison, but that was established on screen in the episode. You didn't need... You know, they had that, like, two minutes of background information instead of a teaser. You didn't really need it. They could have just given us two minutes of extra story. Uh, you know, because the episode worked on its own. And that that's... It was so refreshing. So refreshing to not have... You know, two minutes of this story thread and two minutes of that story thread and two minutes of the other story thread. You know, just like just just tell a fucking story. Yeah, you know? it's, it's just a like, story. I, I, I'm still. Yeah, it's just had they spent time to establish. So wait, are the Pavins really peaceful to the point of um, apathy or are they secretly sinister? Like when Saru crushed the communicators, I'm like, oh, OK, it's, it's a cult. It's, we're going cult. And yeah. then it was like, and, and again, all of the bones are there. Like so Burnham explicitly invoking the idea that now that we know beings live here, we can't use their stuff without their okay. Extremely Star Trek idea reminded me of the um, Halkins, if I'm remembering correctly. This, the people who wouldn't let Starfleet use yeah. their dilithium even for peaceful purposes. And then the Meet the in the Mirror, mirror Universe episode. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, classic, literally a classic TOS question. Do, like, you know, ends justifying the means and rights of others, like all of that's there. And had they just excised, even if they had um, the, the the sub B plot, it's not even like a C plot. It's like a, a B point five plot of Stamets losing his mind a little. It was just you're, you're literally only doing this because you need to pay it off in the next episode. And you don't trust the viewers to remember two episodes ago when Stamets had a clear personality alteration as a result of this thing. Like th- that entire conversation annoyed me, even though I, I it was well acted and both of the, ca- like 
I I like when Tilly is like usefully quirky. Like her lack of picking up on social cues allows her to push people when they don't want to be pushed on something uncomfortable and it achieves something. And that was nice. But overall, it's kind of like that whole conversation about uh, about Hugh. It's like this is exactly why doctors don't treat their family members like that whole like nothing in that entire in that whole sub B plot was organic. It was literally just flagging for the audience, something's wrong with Stamets, we'll tell you more about it next episode. And, like, especially since it cost time, the episode really needed to show up the A-plot, it just makes the, like, we, we talked about this during DS9's closing arc, where there were times, like, especially when they realized they had gone too far too fast with Wynn and Ducat, where they were clearly just marking time to not let the story fall too far away. But even there, it felt less intrusive. And again, and we, we've talked about this before. Deep Space Nine, by the point it had gotten into hardcore serialization, serializa- I can speak, serialization, it had done the work. It had established the characters. It had established the universe. Rather than, it just, yeah. Well, you know what? It felt less piecemeal, too. It felt like, at least for the most part, there were some episodes that were choppy, but for the most part, individual episodes had an individual theme that was developed and completed within the episode. And then it fit together into a larger whole. There were some episodes where they were doing this. And then meanwhile, in an unrelated scene on a different planet, you know, but to me, at least in my memory, things were less choppy than they are here. Yeah. Like it just, I mean, when it comes down to it, the basic in this episode, the Klingon stuff had nothing to do with the planet bound stuff. And then the ship stuff had almost nothing to do with the planet bound stuff. And it was like, I guess I just have to trust that the next episode or the next episodes are going to somehow bring these things together. And if you wanted to do that, like like in a TNG model, if you wanted to do that kind of groundwork, it'd be a two-parter. It would be like, we are clearly setting some narrative stages and with the flagging of part one, you knew to give it a little leeway. Um, it just, I mean, what really nags me I don't is, trust that they're ever going to really finish any of these plot lines. Yeah, it just, what, what really nags me is that I have several questions. Like, and it's not like I need every question answered to have a good time. Sometimes unanswered questions are fun. Um, but it just, I'm still unclear on who or what the Pobbins are, even in a... And again, it's not that I need everything laid out for me and spoon-fed. I just need to have something to hang my hat on to start forming any kind of narrative connection. It's like, so are they a perfectly peaceful people who are blindly assimilating people into their hippy-dippy cult? Do they have ulterior motives? Like, it was Saru's weirdness uh, artifact of just how different everyone is so they didn't quite get it like none of the episode didn't spend any of the time like if nothing else it didn't show us saru really beyond that like one scene when he asked them to make the noise stop we never really saw saru directly interacting with them so there was nothing to really hang a feeling like even if you're setting me up there was no dialogue essentially yeah even if you're setting me up for you know a twist or a reveal or a gotcha and even if I know it's coming, I can still enjoy it. Like, I can still be like, oh, you are cl- like, these are clearly the happy robotic people who are harboring a terrible secret. Star Trek's been down that road many times, and I've enjoyed 80% of them. Um, it just, I wanted, like, I liked that, I liked Saru so much in a vacuum. I just wish he were acting out a more complete story. 
Uh, I agree. Um, that, you know, there were some evocative scenes with him, but at the end of the day, they didn't really map on to a, a broader thing I'm supposed to take away about him or, you know, thing I'm supposed to take away about his experience here and how it's changed him. It's just like, he's a certain way and he kind of got upset about this, but I guess now it's over because they made nice in the, in the sick bay. Um, as far as what part the Pavans play in this sort of overall serial plot line, I, I had questions and my questions were not answered. So it's like somehow this frequency that this planet emits will uncloak Klingon ships which will deliver a decisive strategic advantage uh, or tactical advantage rather to um, the Federation. How did they determine this? Number one, number two, does this effect propagate through space at faster than light velocities? Uh, Because if it's emanating from a planet, it seems like it has to take a certain amount of time to get to where it's going. Um, you know, I can almost let that go. Star Trek is papered over a few explanations here and there. And I understand the papered over explanations are piling up here on Discovery. Well, that that's the thing. It, it's just it's one of a piece of, you know, so many sort of hokey, cheesy, pseudoscience-y things. And it, if it if it was just like a one to one ratio <laughs> between sort of. OK mostly hanging together science-like stuff, which is what Star Trek is. Let's, I mean, let's just be honest about it, right? You know, the the Heisenberg compensator works very well, thank you. We don't have to go deeper into it than that. But they're at least trying to... Oh, no, yeah. but by, They're making nods toward real by science. By acknowledging the rules they're ignoring, they're telling us they know the rules. Yes. Because and th- here th- that's what keeps like, it from being actual magic. Um, you've got fungus that permeates space. Oh, speaking of that, did any did you think the Pavans looked like I the spore absolutely drive? thought they were the spore creatures. Yeah, absolutely. To, the, to the point that that's what I assume the next episode is setting up. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh it it was such an obvious callback when when they first appeared, I was like, "Oh, so I guess the mushrooms are here too." You know, cuz I mean, it's literally the same effect, the sparkly blue stuff, right? And all I can um, think of is, um, who is the, Dan Curry, I think, is the effects supervisor who uh, made a joke, <laughs> uh, if you can't make it good, make it blue. Everything was really fucking blue. Like, everything. It's <laughs> Like, did it nag you a little bit? There, there was like a sameness to everything. Like, I, I like the outdoors. You mean scene. on the planet? Or? Yeah, on the planet. Just everything was this sparkly blue to the point that it made it like a kind of soupy visual like mm. I, I like some of the exterior work like burnham on the like in the clearing with the crystal tower looked pretty good i like the first shots with the blue leaves i'm like okay you guys did your homework you you're photoshopping is on point you made all the leaves blue nicely done guys but like when they were in the sparkly blue love tent it was just like in blue uniforms in dim light it's <laughs> it's like what am I looking? It, it just from a from a cinematographic perspective, I found it a little bland. 
Okay. Speaking of things that were bland in that in that tent, um, I noted um, Tyler's little "What I'm going to do when the war is over." Like every single war movie, as long as there have been both wars and movies, includes a speech like that. Normally, right before the nice 19 year old kid takes a sniper bullet, um, it was just like, oh, I don't know why, but that just maybe it's because I'm preemptively anticipating what I believe now to be near certainty. That the reveal is coming, that he is a, that he is Vok. Um, so I find the speech about the trout and the sailing and the camping to be like so layered on that it almost feels like, see, he can't be a spy. He knows about lakes near Puget Sound. Like it's just, it's just, it's just annoying the hell out of me now. Well, it, it, it's annoying because you know, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. You know, unless they are going to break out some sort of science fiction mechanism for his level of knowledge of earth. It just, it, it can't be believed. And if, if they don't, that will be so lazy and offensive, uh, a storytelling cheat that at, you know, I, I would have a tough time continuing watching the show. Oh no, I have, I have my, um, ultimatum already in the hopper and this is a good segue into discussing the other third of the episode the Klingon stuff um, I thought they were trying to give the Klingon politics some nuance with Laurel but it's honestly too little too late well here's the thing I I was initially and uh, you know at various points throughout her scenes with Cornwell interested you know I was like oh this is interesting. Right. She's playing she's playing two sides or oh this is interesting maybe she really is defecting or is she? You know like I I was I was interested in that stuff but by the time they got to the end of the Klingon subplot I it was such a mishmash that I didn't know what the hell I was supposed to take away oh, from no. it here's, and so, it just pissed me off. Here's here's where I one I will say I hate to say it this way but the scar on her cheek actually made her independently recognizable and that immediately upped my connection to the character she did not look any more like the cookie cutter orcs that the rest of the klingons do but moving on well i gotta say though that the scar ended up not being all that different from the rest of her text yeah yeah (laughs) so anyway um so here's here's where i am with that with the okay i'm a man of what i reasonably consider to be at least slightly above average intelligence that that's not bragging i believe i i'm just i'm a re, i'm a very intelligent person i'm a i have native fluency in the english language and i've absorbed a great deal of literature uh and uh television and movies so i believe i can keep up with the plot at least as well as other people like i'm just i'm prefacing all of this by saying i don't know what happened like and i don't think the episode does either um, so like, so the, so that's, so they're walking out and it's like, we're going to, I'm going to set off a warp core breach or whatever. It's like, okay, that seems to n- unnecessarily lower you like your defection is far more damaging to Cole than actually his death. Frankly, you should just get going. Moving on. When they get caught in the hallway, are we supposed to read that as Cornwell is picking a staged fight to keep up the pretense that's how I read it. Yeah. Or that now that they've been found out, she might as well just go like, yeah, because she can't really because th- even if she defeated Laurel, she's still on a ship full of other Klingons who definitely do want her dead or tortured or what have you. So it's not like 
defeating Laurel would have gotten her anything. So, so that's how I read it. That that was she was picking a she was picking a staged fight to keep up the pretense. Okay, yeah. and then she actually just knocks her unconscious with the electrocution thing, not kills her, and then takes her to the corpse room for appearances. But then why go back to the bridge at the end and say, oh, and all like. Are we supposed? This is the other question I have, or one of my other sets of questions, is when she says, "Before she escaped, she revealed to me that Discovery is an important ship." One, we knew that. You knew that. We know you knew that because that's why you knew to kidnap Lorca. Like, either because you were actually trying to torture him for information, or you were trying to plant Tyler on his ship. You knew everything she told you. No, they learned that in that episode with Harry Mudd and Tyler. So so my question was. Are we supposed to think that Cornwell is actually dead and the escape she's talking about is the one she staged that ended in the fight in the hallway? Or did Cornwell actually get off the ship off screen? (laughs) I mean, I hope they don't just put her off the ship off screen. That would be really lazy. And Uh, And here is my zero hour for this show. If they've killed Cornwell as well... I'm a little bit like I'll hang on because I'm a completist and um, I want to keep yelling at them at this point. But I mean, hey, if I can watch if I can watch Star Trek Beyond, I can watch anything. But it's just like I will be like that makes the third interesting female character you have killed in eight episodes. That's literally one every other episode about that's just about one every other episode and i understand you couldn't pay michelle yo indefinitely you don't have that kind of money i appreciate that and i can live with it landry was just straight up stupid dumber than yar dumber than jadzia it is the it ranks as the dumbest pointless female death on this show like kalar at least spurred something in Worf, like it was, it was a stupid thing to do, and it's a in a long line of doing something terrible to a lead character's girlfriend. It's the uh, girlfriend in the refrigerator thing, and I hate that. But that at least technically served a purpose. Lantry's death was straight up dumb. Cornwell's death will also be dumb, and I, I, I women make well, up more. You're than right. Dead. I mean, if she is dead, it did not really serve a purpose because Lorca's like over it you know it's like he doesn't care and and uh, Lorel doesn't need her for anything and is apparently and... also in custody like why didn't she like this is what makes me think cornwell isn't actually off the ship because why wouldn't Lorel have gone with her and that, that was my other question is she was saying um like she names all the corpses in the room like she's surprised they're dead like who are these people i've never seen them or if i have i clearly don't remember it and you already hated him. Like the the line I literally thought of was the episode of The Simpsons when it when Sideshow Bob was using dead people for voter rolls, and when Lisa finds out that her dead cat snowballs on that list, she goes, "All right, Bob, this time it's personal." And Bart chimes in, y- "You know he did try to kill me." Like that was literally what I was thinking. It's like you already hated him for other things we've seen on screen. Why are you showing me half Klingon corpses? Which, by the way, I did not need that. Um, why are you showing me this to now? I it didn't make me care more about you caring. It just made me wonder who these corpses were. Yeah. So it just I I don't understand anything that happened on the Klingon ship. And like I said, not to brag, but I'm a man who understands a lot. Um, I I can keep I I read like three pages of of Joyce's Ulysses before having to put it down. I mean, like I can handle things. It just I don't understand, and it makes me annoyed because. 
it's not even like like it, maybe this is the difference with limited exception in Deep Space Nine's closing arc. Even when they were jumping completely away from a story to another story for maintenance purposes, at every point, usually what they did was interesting to that story and just good generally. So even if it was a little tonally um, discordant to jump from, you know, Dukat and, or, you know, Weyun and Damar to Win and Dukat or whatever, every individual scene had its own dramatic interest and reason to be and well, literally it's interesting that you say that kevin i i bet i don't know if it exists yeah. already but i bet you could do like a, a fan edit or something and just put all of the you know pieces of the ds9 arc you know into a more sort of cohesive format where things flow within that plot line and it would work now what if you did the same here you know, you put the Klingon stuff together, you put the ship stuff together. You know, do you see what I'm saying? Well, it, it would be would a the lot, scenes work? I feel like it would be they a lot of, really make sense. Yeah, it would be a lot of either waiting. It would be things happening too slowly or too quickly. I just feel like the story wouldn't make much sense. I feel like they're going too fast. I feel like um, so back to the planet, you know, it, it just still really sticks out to me how. Uh, inorganic and perfunctory the plot seemed to be you know it's like we have to do this thing that we only told you about this episode yeah (laughs) you know right it's like they had not established in prior episodes that the uh, cloaked ships were having that much of an impact on the war effort you know and they did absolutely nothing to establish that Starfleet or the Federation or any of their ships were looking for some sort of uh, means by which to negate this advantage that the Klingons now have. They haven't established where this cloaking technology came from. I mean, they said it was like part of the, what do they call it? Sarcophagus ship. Yeah, whatever. Um, You know, but where did Takuvma get it? You know, like, did he invent it? That would be interesting. Tell us that, I guess. Um, or like, like it would take like 10 seconds of edits to make this work. They're having a fight. Discovery runs on conventional engines into orbit of this planet. Klingon cloaking effect suddenly and inexplicably stops working. Yeah, yeah. Boom, boom, done. You've now shown me why this planet is important. But instead, it's like, this is the single, okay, this is the single most important thing any crew in the fleet could be doing right now. And yet we've sent only three officers to do this thing, which is mysterious with basically no advance work, you know, like, like no research into the planet, nothing, you know, it, 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 it's completely inorganic. It, it just, you know, and so while elements of it were enjoyable and like you said, you know, there are definite, you know, uh, yeah, they, they really rang the TOS trope bell, you know, several times and not in a bad way. And bringing in the sort of Gaia theory stuff is interesting. Uh, but at the end of the day, my, my, what I put in my notes at the end of the episode when it was done was this was not a very effective cliffhanger. Klingons are coming and Starfleet has to protect the planet right they, they said like it's clear the Povins invited the klingon so either the Povins are idiots 
or the, they clearly have their own plan that doesn't like I, I'm clearly that getting, we've been given no information about. Yeah, I'm, I'm clearly getting uh, Organian peace treaty yeah, flavors here. Absolutely. But since we got no dialogue about it, it'll be just a complete left field. They call it an ass poll, right? Uh, in the TV trope dictionary. <laughs> This whole series has been ass pull after ass pull. They maybe, pull something out of their ass like, every like, episode. Even if you wanted to, like, even if the episode had been Saru interacting with these creatures and having to explain it to the crew because the Pavans don't communicate the way we do, that's a perfectly valid Star Trek story. It's a perfectly valid story, period. But yeah. you also need to give it more time. You need to let yeah, it cook longer. It can't be done in 90 seconds. And the communication issues between Saru and the Pavans was, I, if it was more than 90 seconds, it was like 100 seconds. Like, it wasn't like five minutes. I, I didn't just forget that part of the episode. Like, they, they, they established for like 10 or 20 seconds that it was hard to talk to them. And that was it. And then they didn't even do it. And then it was done. And he can't talk to him anymore. So it's like, wow, we really learned nothing about this apparently intrinsically important, uh, you know, species and planet. And instead, we got what was interesting character development as far as Saru and Burnham goes. I thought it was a really neat visual to have him uh basically kick her like a like a donkey like a bovine creature would yeah, kick yeah um, uh, I, I thought the running effect was a little weird but i like what they're trying for yeah uh, yeah it doesn't have to look perfect for me i like that they were going there with the the difference in his physiology and so when he kicked her like that and with how you know sort of like damaging the kick was uh, he could have killed her right um like that was that was an effectively jarring image in the way that you know, dismembered Klingon corpses was not uh, because it actually meant something. Well, and it also, right? it made me think like they've indicated he has hooves. He kicked her like a horse and she was like really winded. Like it looked like, like she got kicked by, you know, an equine. And I'm like, that yeah. makes sense. Um, overall, I think my favorite part of the episode and I'm just spoiler alert. Um, I was writing out my written review and I'm, I'm, I, I gave it a three and I think, and I'm despite all of the annoyed that I am, I actually think I'm going to stick with it. Um, and it's largely on the strength of his acting as much as the script was flinging him about every individual piece in like the walls of the scene kind of worked for me because of the strength of his performance. Like when he was like hippy dippy, I, he drank all the Kool-Aid. I was there. It's like, that's like weird and creepy. And I, I, my, my note literally was creepy. Saru is creepy. He, he was very effective at this kind of disaffected, like, and it made me think of the TOS style stories of like, you know, the, the archons or, um, I'm blanking on other specific examples, but those like detached people who are just so happy. Oh yeah. Like Landrew. Right. And in those scenes at the end, when he's yelling at her, uh, you're not going to take this away from me too. And then the scene at the end in sickbay, it's like the script did not support that story, but your acting is selling it like it did, sir. Um, like, like, yeah, like I wish everything that had happened in that scene in sickbay had been portrayed in the show. Like, tell me that Saru feels 
vague anxiety all the time. Like, you could do that in any combination of stories. There are humans who feel constant anxiety, who when they encounter something, normally drugs, that silence that voice, make an unhealthy relationship with that thing. It is completely understandable and a relatable story, and you could have just showed it to me rather than told it to me in your epilogue, but... In mo in almost every individual moment of the episode on the planet, I was enjoying watching Saru so much that I can just barely in my head justify a three. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know where I am on that. You know, I have to say I liked, as much as I hated the Klingon stuff, I liked Mary Schiefo as uh, Laurel. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it, I, I, she actually acted through the the makeup yeah which is quite a quite an accomplishment maybe um, it's because she was speaking english this time that is absolutely what it was I, I you know to i will say that there were some scenes in klingon where she was emoting enough to uh you know give it sort of a real emotional weight um but it was harder to do with the klingon dialogue so yeah, it it definitely definitely helped that they were talking in English. <laughs> um, I also want like I would love to see them just redo like like that scene alone. Had it been uh, traditional Klingon make or at least TNG era makeup, hell, original TOS era apparently augment makeup. I still hate that storyline, but there you go. Like, had she been dressed up like uh, like Kang's wife in Day of the Dove? Would have been fine. Would have been fine. But had she just looked like, <clears throat> excuse me, Lursa or Bator or Grilka or any of that era of Klingon women, that scene would have been a million times better if only because all of her face would have moved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, and I like Jane Brooke again. She's She is really good. She just has that aura of like competent professional... Um, like, I, I I find her interesting to watch in the way I like many of the other characters on the show, and I really don't want her to be dead, because if nothing else, I would love to see her storm onto Discovery and just hand Lorca his balls. That would make me, personally, extremely happy. Yeah, well, I, I agree uh, on her performance. She was given some tough scenes to act in a way that wasn't stupid-looking, and she succeeded completely. Like the the one where she's screaming uh, back at Laurel, um, that I can imagine that going very badly with several actors whom I admire, <laughs> who have done other Star Trek, you know. Um, so she she nailed it, like, and not because she she seemed fierce or something, but because she seemed like she was pushed far enough to do that, but that she still felt. A little bit of like it, it was layered. It was interesting to watch her do that and her sort of jousting with Laurel, uh, her not wanting to betray too much. It's like you say, it, it showed competence. It showed, you know, depth of experience and character. Uh, and so, yes, it would be extremely, extremely off putting if they are going to kill this character that they've now given two episodes worth of good scenes and mostly with the exception of having sex with Lorca, good decision-making, which, which even that, like if they, if they rack up enough other good decisions, I mean, 
let he who has never made an ill-advised sexual decision cast the first stone. I mean, maybe not to that extent. Yeah, it's a hu- it's a human thing it's to a do. Very it. human thing to do. So I can uh, I, I am fine. Like I accept. I uh, like the the strong woman trope can be just as limiting and kind of misogynistic as the docile damsel in distress like if it reduces a character to this one trait yeah um, she doesn't have to be a second wave feminist or something like atashi are you know absolutely not uh she she is interesting and well-rounded as presented and it would be a crime against star trek to kill another one of those characters um so we haven't really talked about the Stamets and Tilly. <sighs> I mean, I like that his prickliness is back a little. His hippy dippy groovy was getting annoying. Um, yeah. And I'm curious. I mean, obviously, it's going to turn out that the using. I mean, this is obviously their trapdoor for why this is never discussed again. It turns out use of this is fatal, or he'll turn into a god being, or the shy halud, or something like. Uh, <laughs> he's well, or if the Pavans really are these spore creatures, maybe like using the drive actually diminishes some real intelligence, you know, or uses sentient beings kind of in the way that we saw in Voyager with the, the Equinox, yeah. right? Um, like, it seems like they're... If, if, they've already had an ethical story tied to the use of the spore drive yeah. with the tar- tardigrade. Mm-hmm. It seems like, you know, they're just in that groove. <laughs> A lot of the, the quote-unquote new quote-unquote science <laughs> in this show has been biological science uh biological technology right and so it seems like biotech and biotech ethical issues let that siren go by yeah (laughs) sorry this is life it's not a real recording studio sorry if we've spoiled the illusion (laughs) um but bioethics and biotech ethics seems to be just something that's on their mind and so I would not be shocked if that's where the spore drive story is going. The The other potential that occurred to me would be kind of like, a, what's the TNG episode with the warp speed limit? Um, oh, uh, force of nature. Yeah, like a force of nature angle in which, you know, their use of this drive is going to somehow destroy the spore network that, has a right to exist or, or something like that. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, the Stamets stuff, it seemed like he was seeing through time or something that because was the they, they've already established yeah. that Tilly wants to be a captain someday. Um, his prickliness. So it it's runs like, a little too hot and cold. It doesn't feel like an actual character trait in places. Well, and they tried to explain it, you know, like they said, well, I'm being prickly and reserved because I've put my lover in this, you know, sort of dilemma in which he can't do this, but he also can't do that. And so I just have to suck it up and, you know, suffer, right? Which, you know, on the surface is relatively interesting, but at the end of the day, it's all just talk, you know, it's like 
I genetically modified myself, which I guess is illegal or something, but it's only been mentioned in dialogue twice. There's never been an actual plot point that's revolved around it. And so the feeling of danger is not really present. It's just a feeling of, well, this character mentioned something and I guess I have to remember that as a motivation, right? Which is an annoying thing to have to do as an audience member. You want you want to feel things along with the characters because you're experiencing things along with them, not be told things by the characters that you have to remember to make sense of their motives and actions. You you see what I'm saying? You know, yeah, yeah. Because because they're so focused on this sort of overarching serial plot, none of the characters, with the possible exception of Burnham and Saru, have had the opportunity to breathe. And Saru, I think, is a stretch case. Uh, you know, really only Burnham has had serious character development. And so it's it's like they're trying to kowtow, in a way, to the expectations of, of Trek fans who expect the characters to be well-rounded over time, but they're not doing the work. They're not giving us the Stamets episode. They're not giving us the Saru episode. They're not giving us the Lorca episode. You know, in the way that once TNG and once the, you know, DS9 and Voyager really got into a groove, it was in a groove because of the, the pillar formula, essentially. You know, pillar said, we need to do character focused shows. And so they'd have the A plot, but the A plot would affect one character more than the others. And so the character story would be the thing that draws us through the A-plots. Now, the A-plots could be really good sci-fi plots, or they could be kind of lame sci-fi plots. But it sort of didn't matter as long as the character was compelling enough. You know, So if you really yeah. learn something about Riker, or you really learn something about Dax, or wh- whoever, right, that's enough. You know, But here, the plot is sort of living or dying on its own merits. And it's not all that good <laughs> as, yeah, plots even as go. yeah even whether or not it's star trek it's just not as it, it it's just very summary in places yeah it doesn't make it yeah it's like reading an outline of a plot not like experiencing a plot and because of that you know it it just my my biggest note at the end of this episode was meh you know it's like i'm not really engaged by this crystal tower or the pavins or the cloaking device or any of that shit. Certainly not the Klingon politics, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. It. It's, and so, what I want is character stories because that'll at least tide me over until you know someone in the writers' room comes up with a better fucking plot, you know. But they're not doing it, and so it, I understand why people. <laughs> might think this is a good episode. I think they're wrong. I think it's like like a like a a chopped salad where individual parts are good, but when mixed together, there's there's not a dressing that brings it all together and, you know, the individual parts just kind of end up it's less than the sum of its parts. Yeah. That's my that's my feeling on it. No, yeah, I I, I get that. Um, 
Yeah, I just like last week is is there's a reason last week was the best of the series so far because it had a functional sci-fi plot, not the world's most shockingly original. Um, and the, the denouement was kind of ridiculous. Um, but because the episode's focus was Burnham's emotional growth, you could hang your hat on that and care about it successfully. Hell, I like Rascals, not even ironically. I just straight up like it. Because as stupid, facially stupid as that plot is, all of the You learn work- so much about Picard. You learn so much about Roe. You learn so much about... Uh, you know, maybe less so about Guinan and, and Keiko, but you learn so much ab- about at least two of the four characters. You learn a lot about Miles, <laughs> and, <laughs> right? And, and you and you watch character relationships you care about stressed in a way, yeah. Like that's so, fun. Um, you're so, right. Yeah, the like, plot is stupid, the stupidest, but the episode works. But the episode works. So I uh, just um like and and I think if if all of Discovery were what we got last week. It would still never crack my top two or three, but I would still like the show more overall. I think that's like, I just want, yeah, I do want more dedicated character work. And like, like I said, I think Deep Space Nine proves Star Trek can handle a serialized narrative in places. Cause even before the big final arc, they were kind of spreading their stories out a little. I'm not but- against serial storytelling per se what i'm against is bad serial storytelling well okay i i just uh I, i'm about five episodes into the second season of stranger things that is a highly serialized show i get i and th- this this raises a question i've been seeing online so we can talk about it now stranger things was obviously meant to be binged it has individual episodes but that's largely to remind you you should go to the bathroom now because humans have to do that. Um, it's not those episodes. I don't think are meant to be consumed one at a time, one week apart. Um, that being said, over the course of this serialized story, at multiple points, all of the characters get some backstory and some exploration and some motivation and some thing. Like, um, like from the jump, Winona Ryder's character is like kind of already on the edge of a nervous breakdown because she's like a single mom in rural Indiana and that would drive anyone to the point of insanity. Then her son goes missing and she really loses it, but at the same time finds the ability to crisis manage really well. Like, that's an interesting arc. So, like, even if there was never a, you know, Joyce Byers episode of Stranger Things, there was enough in each episode to keep it, to keep her character not feeling like a trope. Yeah. So, and that's that's my question. I really want to find some friends who I know for a fact are waiting to, you know, spend their free month of CBS All Access or whatever to just binge this over Christmas. And I'm curious what watching all eight episodes together, or at least maybe you know in two chunks or whatever, does to the sense of how much story is happening too or too quickly or not quickly enough. I so that's a great question. I think the answer at least as far as I can tell, is that if a person were to try to binge it, they would lose momentum because it's, it's like they're sort of like in halfway territory, you know, like they're not making it serial enough for the serialization to work, but then because they're halfway there, they're also not doing character work enough to make, you know, individual stories work well enough. And so I just, I get the feeling that 
that there's a few episodes like the first three or so really flow pretty well but then it just it just really gets choppy and weird and it just doesn't work all that well and maybe, um, maybe part of the problem is even if the story were firing on all cylinders the story being told here is not the story of a crew like that's just not the story they've chosen to tell even if all the character work were there and they were all fully fleshed out, fully realized beings with enough time to do all that, this isn't the story of the crew of Discovery doing something. This is a show, it's either about the war, it's about Burnham, Lorca's enough of a cipher that the show's not about him, he is an obstacle. He is a, he is a problem to be eventually explored and solved. He is not the focus of the story. His experience, like... So it's just, um, you know, Kevin, yeah, you've said something that has crystallized or at least made me think about what's nagging me about the show in a different way. And that is, it's not about discovery. It's, it's not about this ship. It's not about this crew that I, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but think about TNG Think about Voyager. Think about Deep Space Nine. It's as much about the place. as It's it's as much about the setting as it is about the characters and, you know, the world, right? This show is entirely about the world at this point. And that's not enough. It's not enough to read, you know, sort of a, a bullet point list of things that happen in a world. That's not interesting, storytelling what's interesting is when you build up a relationship with a crew in a particular place whether it's a ship or a station whatever you know and you want to be there with them do you want to do you want to live on discovery not really and okay and again stepping back um we do a lot of critiquing of the show as star trek uh so comparing it to other eight episodes in of star trek it's had no stinkers yet. It's never made me like claw at my eyelids in 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 frustrated, bored horror. I think this is as close as it's been gotten. So I, I yeah, this I, like I think I'm sticking with the three, but it is like I and I I was thinking about this in my notes. If Cornwell's really dead, this retroactively gets a two. I will <laughs> go back and I will I will change the Google Drive spreadsheet. It's 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 my spreadsheet. I can change what I want. But if Corn if Cornwell's really dead, this is a two. Um, but yeah, it's just so okay. Maybe like I am. I'll say this because uh, I we're, we're I think we're getting close to the end, and I want to say something nice because I want to compliment sandwich this. Um, I remain cautiously encouraged. That enough people with enough talent and enough respect for the things that make Star Trek uniquely Star Trek still have their hands in this. I have enough. Uh, and I think part of this is part of the uh, one of the other downsides of the golden age of television is that it's no longer unreasonable to expect to show hits from the very first frame that acting choices, characterization choices, writing choices all fire almost instantaneously and that is not the arc of previous star trek shows so i'm trying to remain in this place of the show has at no point been actively bad the show is 
following the natural progression of decisions I already knew they made that I already knew I disagreed with. So I'm I'm trying to hold back a little to, to not, like, sour myself on the show prematurely. Like, don't get me wrong. If it's this tone and this flinging about for seven more seasons, yeah, it'll probably go the way of Enterprise for me, in which I check in occasionally. I'll binge over Christmas when I'm sitting on my parents' couch with nothing better to do. But I will not. it'll not be event viewing for me. If they find... Like, I really hope someone in that room watches... If this episode in particular... And when they ask themselves, as I hope any TV crea- any creator asks themselves, what works here, what doesn't? And they watch this episode and go, Saru acting worked really well. And then decide to do more of that. So I, I am not down on the show yet. I will be very annoyed if they killed Cornwell. I'm just going to keep circling back to that. Like if I need to start a petition, like if the writers decided to kill her off... I will start a petition to get her back. KLR2 while I'm at it. I'm going to get all the female characters. They unceremoniously offed for not great reasons. I'm going to get them all back. Um, but I, I want to, I think I can say with a straight face that this season is more consistently good than other series. First half dozen, dozen episodes have been. I will also acknowledge that the show has yet to be great. Um, DS9, Voyager, Next Gen, all managed, I think, at least one episode that made you go, oh, I, yeah, like there's something there. E- even in like the weakest parts of, you know, like TNG and that real low doldrums middle first season, there were still like bits and pieces that made you go, oh, I get, I, I see where this can go. And then eventually well, th- they- there was like where no one has gone before or, you know, something like that in early TNG. Um, Voyager actually had a very strong opening set of episodes. Uh, DS9 was a little rougher. <laughs> um, Storyteller. Story <laughs> but it did still have some some good episodes near the beginning. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just I don't I, want to rag on the show unfairly. It is it was, you know, they're starting work on second season now, apparently, and they're probably not listening to this. That would be too much to hope for. But I, I hope, like, I, I, I got to say, one of the most fascinating experiences of doing these weekly podcasts is, one, I'm really proud of us for sticking with this on a weekly basis. We have busy lives. Um, but two, our critiques have not been that far off of the gestalt. That doesn't happen to Trekkies, and it doesn't happen to us even with other Trekkies. We tend to be sticklers in a way that a lot of other people can just go, that's eh, fine. I'm like, I, I have friends who are... I believe in good faith, diehard Trekkies who liked at least some of the Abrams movies where they both make you and I, you know, purple with rage. The consensus of several reviews I read on a weekly basis, opinions, uh, critiques whose opinions I respect, all kind of stick it at the same place of like, the character work is almost there. The Klingon stuff is impenetrable. Fix it. So, may, and why was the supre- why was the prequel at all? Yes, yeah, and we're back. Stupid. We're back to where we started. Everything that annoys me about this show has to do with because even if they solve it, even if they find a way to make it fit, it's still going to be like, why did you bother? I could, I could, I could juggle knives on the way to work, and even if I didn't cut myself open, it'd still be like, well, why did you give yourself that task? Did you what utility did you derive from making yourself go through that? Like, it's just. 
I, I, convincing me you know how to thermodynamically seal this episode off from the rest of Star Trek doesn't impress me. <laughs> yeah. It, it, they have not made the case that there were stories that needed to be told. Yeah, I didn't need to know period. Harry Mudd was a homicidal killer. Yeah. Uh, so as far as this episode goes, I think I'm at a two. It's just too much of a mess for me to, to say it's, you know, in the sweet spot of mediocre, good, uh, Star Trek. It's, there are good portions of it, but they don't gel. They don't cohere. Uh, and there are potentially, potentially very, very bad portions of it. Uh, you know, so like, I think it's below average. No, I, I, and I appreciate that. My, my three is provi- provisional and and barely. Like, it, it's just the, watching it, like looking back to the experience of watching it, I was sufficiently entertained by Saru's plot, largely just because I, I like the actor, I like the character, I like, I like all of the implications in his character, and I would one day hope that they put those on screen. So this this just squeaks by for me, and I will come back and I will edit the blog post and I will edit the Google Drive and I will I I will rerun all the necessary numbers if Cornwell's actually dead. So so mine is a three with an asterisk. If Cornwell's dead, this is a two. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, comparing it to TOS, if you think about Return of the Archons or something, right? Which I assume we gave a three. Uh, so like like a six total um you know an episode like that shows you the strength the strength of the tos format and really what was also the tng format uh which is uh individual almost like mini movies every week in which you can fully explore and flesh out whatever plot you're going to do now that means that some episodes are just going to be stinkers because, you know, the setup just isn't that good, you know. But because you do that, uh, some of the episodes are just stunningly amazing, you know, like Inner Light, right? Why is the Inner Light so good? The Inner Light is good because both aspects of the plot work. It is a self-contained science fiction story with deep resonance, you know, to, to the viewer today, you know, ecological catastrophe, you know, the desire to, you know, have something of your, your civilization live past your world. Like it, it's, it's an amazingly resonant science fiction idea, but then also it's an amazingly resonant character story because it dovetails perfectly with who Jean-Luc Picard is and the sacrifices he's made in his life, you know, and, when you have individual mini movies, you can do that. Here, so much time is wasted getting everything you know, synced up and up to speed and just making sure that each of these individual balls is being pushed forward enough, but not too much, you know? And I, I, it just fatigues me. I'm just tired, you know? I'm glad the season is reaching its its midpoint and they're just going to stop because I'm just like, guys, I'm just fucking over it. You know, like I like your characters. You, you really did something there. You made characters that I don't hate. 
you know, <laughs> and you, you've you've cast actors that I enjoy watching, and the look of the show, although obviously you know, totally inappropriate based on where you've said it, is slick and good and entertaining and you know visually pleasing. You know, great, okay, cool. You know, but it's such a fucking mess. It's a mess. And it would be not a mess almost at all if uh, if it were 100 years after Voyager. Like, even the Klingons, instead of feeling like this weird, where is this coming from? I could completely buy that the socioeconomic damage of the Dominion War started a downward spiral in which a bunch of, uh, you know, Klingons... Klingon from, demagogues or right, something. Right, yeah, cl- rural Klingons felt neglected and, you know, make Kronos great again or something and went completely batshit crazy. I could buy that. I, I, I'm living it. Um, so yeah, I just, um, it, it, all of the pro, all of the problems stem from this. What I, I have to believe it was just a crass commercial choice. Maybe, maybe that's what's always nagged me about the crass commercial choices where it's just like we don't trust people to watch something that's good because it's good. It's like no one's gonna watch Star Trek who, no, I don't believe there's a single person who would say, I would like to watch some Star Trek. Oh, wait, it's not set in or about the original series? Well, now I don't want to watch Star Trek. No, except for like a few numb nuts in the early days of TNG would actually say that. And I think they've aged out of the, the pool here, honestly. Well, and think about it, Kevin. Who is making the decisions now? Every decision from Nemesis onward has been made by CBS. Right? Yeah. You know, or or CBS Paramount or or whatever. You know, basically, once the the Aegis left the sort of Roddenberry company, the you know the company of creators that he founded and peopled, and then that Rick Berman continued and kept finding people, you know, to to be a part of. Uh, it seems like decisions are now made based on, you know trying to satisfy demographic groups and to uh, sort of tick boxes, tick franchise preservation boxes. Whereas prior decisions were made in terms of what what's actually interesting. What would be an interesting spin? What would be an interesting gloss? They, they weren't trying to, you know, like, well, it's, it's, become, a weird... it's become a Hollywood product well, and the it, it... Hollywood Hollywood model is you take uh, internationally recognized IPX and then you just try to fill in story gaps with that recognized IP and not ever change it to the degree that people will stop watching that recognized IP, right? That's exactly what this is. Well, I mean, and what annoys me was, I think a lot, like, the freedom to make those creative focus. I like, I believe in every step of the way, Roddenberry included, was trying to get a paycheck. No one was sure. doing this purely out of the love of their hearts. I get it. Because we don't live in a world with replicators yet. They um, wanted to make good TV. But the freedom of being syndicated at that time gave them a level of control that they would not have with a network. And we now live in a world in which everything is syndicated just through streaming services rather than local affiliates. Like, you're back to a world where you can make, like, Stranger Things, go, to going back to just because I've watched since it was on the brain deal, um, Stranger Things could not be done as a network show. It's too dark. The care, like, you can't have kids swearing. 
Though I will say the swearing on Stranger Things far more effective than the swearing here. Just putting it out there. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's like that story is too specific. Like you couldn't be like, oh, well, it can't just be from the 80s. Not everyone is from like it would be watered down to the point where it'd be this like mishmash of reference. It like making it more popular would only make it more beige. Whereas because you don't have to get all 300 million Americans watching the same thing at the same time, you are free to paint with all the colors and people like it or they don't. And as long as the streaming service produces enough things that enough people like cumulatively, it should theoretically be like as long as if everyone subscribes to Netflix, even if they're all subscribing for a different show or set of shows, Netflix is still financially viable. Like it's it's just like you have the free. It should have just been a Netflix show. Like they yeah, should have yeah. had the freedom to say we. And I've I've made this analogy before. I'm going to make it again because I enjoy making it. But it's just Star Trek is the gay porn of science fiction. It is a niche thing for people who. And I would say, like and probably because these two those two properties hold very special places in my in my life. Where it's like I the things Star Trek has are the, the and the things I like about it are the things other things don't have. And you're never going to add enough... Like, you're never going to add enough naked women to gay porn to make it appeal to the masses. That's just not how it's going to work. You are never going to add enough explosions to Star Trek to make it cool. It's not cool. I'm fine with it not being cool. I mean, it just... It doesn't have to be Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I like Star Wars. I don't like... I like Star Wars I, for what it is. Yeah, I'm not I'm not like a... Doesn't... doesn't I, I mean, I'm... I, I don't own a Jedi robe, but, you know, it's like, it's it's perfectly good cinema. And, you know, hey, six out of nine movies that are decent, <laughs> at least, is a pretty good track record. <laughs> um, well, I, I don't know how the next one's going to be. So so five out of eight movies thus far. It certainly looks like it's good. Yeah. I mean, based on previews. At this point, I trust Kathleen Kennedy and... Uh, it feels very, very weird to say this, J.J. <laughs> Abrams. Uh, I'm. This is a strange place for me, folks. Trusting J.J. Abrams to do something that's not dumb, uh, but I, I trust the people in whose hands the Star Wars franchise is in, and it's sad that I guess Brian Fuller isn't the showrunner anymore. I, so I haven't watched Hannibal. Um, oh, it's you, so good. It's you haven't, so good. yeah, and you say it's so good. Is it good because it it's cohesive and like it makes sense and it it's nowhere near as like scattershot as this show is, is it? It's it's almost the inverse. It is it is like if you'll pardon the metaphor, like scalpel precision um, with its storytelling and. It uses horrifyingly graphic imagery, stuff that shocked me that it got away on network television, but it's always in the service of a moment, a feeling, or a character beat in a way that even as I'm horrified, I'm bothered by how compelled I am even through how horrified I am. That's how good that show was. Okay. Like, yeah, cannot say enough nice things about Hannibal. I also, so it seems it, clear that that's not what's going on. Yeah. Here. Also, um, if you're looking for the whimsical side of Brian Fuller's brain, Wonderfalls is also a delightful show. Only ran 13 episodes, totally bingeable in a weekend. You, I think, will absolutely love the main character on that show. Um, okay. You can't say enough nice. Like, 
I just, and maybe that's it. Like all of Brian Fuller's, just to lament this while we're here, all of Brian Fuller's things, uh, Pushing Daisies, Wonderfalls, Hannibal, his Voyager episodes, you get the idea the guy has an idea in his head and he has the basic competence to execute it. And if not himself directly, at least know how, like there's a certain stable of actors who've appeared in several of his things and you go, oh, you clearly know how to like, like it says something that you, continue to work with this core group of people that it means you must be at least decent to work with and you know you recognize talent when you see it and can delegate like all of it just speaks to some like quality it's just i that maybe maybe that's what i'm missing too like this feels like discovery feels like it was done by committee um all of the stuff i like feels like like i feel like Kristen Beyer must have submitted a script in which we learn something about saru's uh, emotional life uh, on this planet and then they chiseled away at it to make room for the arc stuff and yeah or she got like editorial direction like yeah this is great we love it but we can't do it right now yeah just uh that's what maybe that's it just uh i want i i just <laughs> i'm trailing off here because uh, it's too much to articulate i just I want to feel like someone's someone or even someone like plural someone's vision is being realized rather than, like you said, boxes are being checked. Mentioning Sarek's name doesn't make me, you know, go weak in the knees. Telling me a good story makes my heart go pitter pat. Like that's all, that's all I want. Like, and I'll say discover. I made this point several times during the Abrams movies, which was even if you gave me something that was totally completely not Star Trek, but wearing a Star Trek suit, but in and of itself was a good, well-told story, I would deal with it. I am I am not so pedantic that I can't accept there is room for diverse voices under the aegis of my fandom. Like, like if, you if Battlestar Galactica were just reset word for word on the Enterprise and they were all wearing Starfleet uniforms and then you just let that episode, that series play out as is, I would say... Well, this is not Star Trek in that it in no way embodies any of the ideas of Star Trek that have come before it. But I can't criticize it for being terrible, tele even mediocre television, at least until, you know, the, the back end there. But it's like, so Discovery inches closer to this line, certainly, than the Abrams movies did. And I am more entertained eight episodes in than I was for Enterprise, I'll be honest. I think I, I, think I fell away by about episode four or five of Enterprise. And I was in a different place in my life. I wasn't watching as much TV. I acknowledge that. But it's just kind of like Enterprise didn't grab me until I picked it up again, like late season three, season four, when they really, you know, started hitting on all cylinders. So I, I keep trying to come back. I'm trying to give myself this pep talk where it's like, there are good things here. There are good people and good actors. And like, I feel like that should be enough. It's like, I, if I can hang on through Code of Honor and Angel One and ooh, what were the other clunkers in season one of Next Gen? Um, or Justice. Justice. Or, you know, your, your move along home. Uh, I think Thaw was in season two of Voyager. Like, those are clunkers. Those are like, what the hell is happening? These episodes are why it's hard to explain to people why I like Star Trek so much. Um, and Discovery has yet to give me that episode. This episode, I think, is arguably the weakest so far. I think that's a pretty straightforward argument. Um, but it's still not as bad. So I, I am, 
I'm going to continue to be cautiously optimistic. The cocktail I drink with the episode on Sunday evening might just get larger. <laughs> um, I think it's the weakest. I think in some ways you're right. It is not as bad, quote unquote, as some of the bad early, you know, TNG or whatever. Uh, it's bad in a different way. <laughs> Well, is there something to be said? Now I'm just I'm just talking myself in circles, and at some point I assume people are just going to stop listening. But it's not radio. Um, is it? Is there something to be said for the idea that the lack, like part of the reason there aren't great episodes, is there aren't bad episodes? Because a bad episode means you were trying something and it didn't work. Like, it, it, does the act of creation require that risk of failure? And is like because everything in the series is focused on serving this uh, narrative arc and this singular overarching story, they never have the freedom to be like to have like a Brandon Braga brain fart where he is just like, oh, yeah, all the people live upside down and wear inverted hats on Tuesdays. And then we're going to tell a story and that story is ridiculous. But the same mind that came up with that like ridiculous story also came up with some of its best stories so maybe, maybe maybe there's something to be said there. You need to have the freedom to really screw up, to really just run your car right off the road in order well, to... Well, and like, then to reset it by the next episode. Yeah. Huh. Something to think about. All right. Well, okay. That It's a five from us. And I think that's fair. I, I, think, a, I think stepping back, I would call a four a little too low. Five actually, actually feels appropriate. I enjoy any time that... Kirk and Spock, like our our unique perspectives, create something, some synthesis that I believe is more balanced. Always makes me uh, feel good about the project. Um, but still, not a great episode. Good moments, good moments. Give Doug Jones all the acting awards. Um, he tried. He tried. Um, but that's it for. Uh, oh, I've already forgotten. C is it C Vis or C Vos? C Vis Pachem. <laughs> Parabellum. Uh, Civis Pachem Parabellum. Yeah. yeah. So next week is the mid-season finale. Um, we're going to try to uh, pick up in the break with uh, more Voyager. Um, we should mm -hmm. get the next review up in the next, uh, hopefully between now and the next uh, Discovery episode. But uh, we'll see. And uh, other than that, see you next time. Yep. Good night, everybody.